Hi, I'm Paul Shari, Director of the Technology and National Security Program here at CNAS. And we're here today for a bonus episode of our podcast series on drones. We had a whole series last year, and we now have a new policy from the Trump administration on drone exports. And so joined today by Professor Michael Horowitz from the University of Pennsylvania and an adjunct senior fellow here at CNAS. Talk about what does this policy mean? Welcome, Mike. Hey, Paul. How's it going? Great. Um, so, you know, we've been waiting for this for a really long time. Um, you know, we knew the Trump administration would relook this policy. A lot of conversations in government over the past year and a half. Now here it is. So let's take stock. Mike, what does the policy say? The new policy seems to do two things principally. First, it allows companies to sell armed UAVs through direct commercial sales, which is a much less cumbersome process that involves less US government active involvement than foreign military sales, which this in theory will speed up the process of approving drone exports. Second, it now classifies drones with laser designators on them as unarmed. Previously, just having the ability to laser target meant a drone was categorized as armed. Just having a laser meant somehow that made it armed right there. I didn't understand it either. Okay. So, so all right, the, the key question then is, what does this mean? Is this going to open the floodgates and the U.S. is going to let drones loose on the world? Or does it have, does it move the needle at all? Which is what we saw of the Obama policy a couple years ago had very little effect. I mean, let's be clear, drones have already been let loose on the world by, you know, the 11 countries that China's exported them to, along with Israeli exports and countries building their own, uh, in their own systems. I mean, I think that was probably one of the, the policy drivers here. But the truth is that, that we don't know. The, one of the biggest constraints on U.S. drone exports has been U.S. participation in the Missile Technology Control Regime, or MTCR, which requires a strong presumption of denial for exports of systems that have a payload of more than 500 kilograms and can have a range of more than 300 kilometers. And all right, so let's talk about this. So this, the policy doesn't actually tackle this really critical issue that limits exports, which is the MTCR. Right. There had been some there had been some rumors in the media prior to the announcement of the policy that some countries might get placed on essentially a pre-approved list, you know, close to U.S. allies and partners that were also members of the MTCR. But at least from the policy guidance that we've seen thus far from the Trump administration, there's no uh, there's no sign of that. So so we don't actually know what's happened to that that critical barrier to or, or, or hindrance to approving drone exports. So, you know, you and I both have been working this issue for years, Mike, here at CNAS through our Proliferated Drones Project, but before that at the Pentagon, uh, where we both worked on this issue inside government. Um, and I think this has been a, a, both a personal and professional kind of pain point and a sore spot of trying to really get the government to adapt to the reality of drone proliferation that's already out there. And the U.S., as you pointed out, is playing catch-up. Um, you know, is this, is this the policy we've been looking for? Are these the, dro the, the drones that we've been looking for? Uh, how do you think this stacks up in terms of what we've talked about in the past? I mean, I, I, think that, I, mean, I think that industry is probably a little disappointed that the Trump administration wasn't more forward-leaning and explicitly saying, like, our goal is to export. You know, that being said, you know, if you look at the coverage and what uh, Peter Navarro and others said in the announcement, 
you know, increasing exports to help American businesses is a, is a clear foreign policy priority of the Trump administration. One would assume that that should translate into support for clearing the bureaucratic obstacles to exporting uh, more uh, drones. Allowing them to be sold through uh, direct commercial sales is, is a huge step in that process, as long as the, the MTCR doesn't, doesn't get in the way when we're talking about responsible countries. I mean, the, the devil's going to be in the details here. I mean, you know, we've, we've been through a policy change before in the Obama administration where, you know, what happened? Like, we, Italy's reapers got armed and, and then that was it. So, you know, this is, I think, really interesting about the way the story is being told in the media and the way the White House is, is talking about this is the messaging is all about American competitiveness and jobs. Um, and it's not, not a surprise to hear that kind of language coming out of this administration. Obviously, a huge priority for them. That's what uh, President Trump campaigned on. Um, we've seen Peter Navarro from the White House talking about this policy, and obviously that's been the focus of his efforts. But um, there's also a national security case for increasing drone exports. So let's talk about that. This is something we've worked on before. What's the national security case, Mike, for the U.S. loosening up some of these export restrictions? I think there are two big national security benefits. The first is that the in a world where the United States wants its allies and partners to do more around the world, where the Trump administration wants allies and partners to, to share the burden, giving them the capacity to do so with an important weapon that's been critical in the global war on terror is, is something that could uh, assist them. The second is that if they don't get these capabilities from the US, they're going to get them elsewhere. You know, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, Egypt, Iraq, all US allies or partners and all have Chinese uh, produced drones. And that means there are Chinese uh, contractors, potentially Chinese soldiers, you know, on the ground working with U.S. allies and partners. So exporting drones to, to countries is not just about building partner capacity. It's also about, about protecting the U.S. relationship with those countries in a world where we're in a, a, a you know, great power competition with China. So our old policy was not just subsidizing jobs in China to build these drones, but also pushing some of our partners really into the arms of the Chinese and deepening their defense relationships. I mean, the other and the other thing here is when you know, when if to the extent that some of the concern is that, say, you know, a country like Egypt uh, might might use uh, drones in a way that that violates human rights or, or international law, they're certainly more likely to do that if they get a if they have a platform from China with essentially no oversight or anybody telling them to use it in a responsible way. You know, with U.S. exports, often comes U.S. training and U.S. U.S. support and U.S. influence that makes it more likely that a country will use their capabilities in a way that's consistent with international humanitarian law. I, you know, I'm glad you brought that up. I think that's such a key point that if you really care about um, what a world looks like when more countries get a hold of this technology and kind of what these norms are, you know, the best way to shape those norms is if you're engaged in, in interacting with those countries. And if you're selling them the technology, then you can place restrictions on it. You can give them training. Whereas if they're getting it from the Chinese, then then you have very little influence over what they're doing. Yeah, I mean, this has been a. I mean, this is a, a problem across the board. It's always a. This is always an issue from an arms exports perspective. You want to help allies and partners, but you you don't want to be in a situation where they can always come to you and say, you know, all right, if you don't give us this, like we're going to China. You know, at some point they you know they need to make their own decisions about who they want to be be allied with uh, in this world. 
but it, I mean, this is definitely a, a, you know a concern. I think a couple of years ago, the you know especially in in some places on the Hill and even some parts in the in the parts of the U.S. government, the you know people thought of you know drones as you know drones equal drone strikes equal you know vi- equal violating human rights and you know they didn't want to you know aid repression. I mean that that was a, a, a perception that that assumed a, a U.S. monopoly on uh, on drones and, and drone exports and. That's just not the case. You know, the new policy is uh, starting to align our export policy with the reality of proliferation. So let's talk politics for a second. I mean, why now? Part of this is, of course, the Trump administration's um, concern about American competitiveness. But there are also some bureaucratic politics inside the U.S. government on this. Um, How much does the, the weakening of the State Department bureaucratically under Tillerson, um, you know, affect this policy both in getting us to this point where it's passed, and then in the implementation going forward. I mean, it's it's hard to know, but given the the bureaucratic politics of this in the past, I mean, one one can only suspect that that there is not a confirmed Secretary of State, that the State Department a budget has been cut, that a morale at the State Department is low, and that the State Department seems relatively weak in the interagency. All made it more would you know make it more difficult for them if they wanted to to try to block uh, you know a policy proposal that made drone exports uh, easier. You know the State Department's always been of you know two minds uh, on drone exports. On the one hand, from a political military perspective, the State Department loves drone exports because they build partner capacity and American allies love them. From an arms control perspective, the State Department's tr- traditionally been concerned. I think in this administration, it's not just that the State Department is a little bit weaker, it's that the, the political military uh, part of the State Department is, is relatively more empowered. So, my, you know, if I had to bet, I mean, my bet would be, you know, DOD came knocking with a policy proposal, and this time, you know, State and the interagency finally said yes. Well, and now you have um, some folks in the White House who are going to lean hard into that change as well. Right. I mean, this this supports the overall policy objectives of the Trump administration and, and Trump foreign policy. You know, I mean, this is a case in some ways where a what is a very you know technical you know policy issue. You know, how many drones should the U.S. be exporting a year, and how should the U.S. be thinking about those in in relation to its its arms control obligations? You know, and something that that essentially hasn't been a political issue. Uh, aligns with the political objectives of the Trump administration. And so I, I think you're likely to see support for implementing the policy in a in a pretty consistent way from the, you know, from the White House. Now whether it's high level enough support to defeat, you know, any bureaucratic opposition that might exist, you know, it's tough to say. I mean I want to go back to the MTCR issue because this is the one thing that's not in there. And you know, we've we've talked about this in the past, we've written on this. And there's a range of kind of possible solutions here. One is the list of countries that might be pre-approved or cleared to, um, to get uh, Category 1 systems. The other one is thinking about redefining how we interpret um, drones under the MTCR and treating them like aircraft instead of missiles. Um, do we have any sense of how, you know, how much it matters that this issue doesn't tackle the MTCR problem? How much is it going to make a difference? I think it will make a difference. I mean, it's one of the reasons why the the U.S. is, as you know, according to media reports, has started to to push within the MTCR to redefine 
uh, drones as aircraft. In you know 1987, when the MTCR was first implemented, drones meant target drones. They were defined as they were essentially defined as cruise missiles. Now drones are more like aircraft, and, and just like there's a carve out for aircraft in the MTCR, it would make sense that there would be a carve out a carve out for for drones as well, since regulating drones doesn't achieve the goal of the MTCR, which is preventing the proliferation of long-range missiles that can carry weapons of mass destruction, you know, like cruise missiles and ballistic missiles. The, the challenge here is that the MTCR operates by consensus, which means if any member, say Russia, decides that they want to be difficult uh, about this issue, they can essentially veto a, veto a change. And in a world where you have other uh, other issues on the table, like say with the INF Treaty and you know other kinds of challenges involving uh, missiles and proliferation, it's it's you know we it's it's hard to change international institutions, and and I suspect that this might be the best that we could get for a while. But you know maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe the Russians will go along. There are so many things about this MTCR angle that have always fascinated me. I mean, one we have the situation where there's this real stickiness in this international agreement. We have this 30-year-old agreement, um, and yet we're, we're sort of hemmed in by the technology as it was envisioned in, you know, 30 years ago. And, and that's still, still shifting things today. And this, I think it's an interesting lesson for how do we think about regulating or managing emerging technologies that it's just it's very hard to foresee maybe where this is going in the future. Right. I mean, I think the case of drones and the MTCR is a clear example of the potential opportunity costs from regulating emerging technologies before you know what they actually you know, might be used for, in that you can, you can end up with an eventual mismatch between the, the purpose of a technology and what a technology is used for and the purpose of a particular international institution, because these things are sticky. They're hard to change. And it requires political capital that countries don't always necessarily want to want to spend, and and so I think it, it, there are lessons potentially here for thinking about the regulation of other emerging technologies as well. And you know the other thing that's interesting is we've been talking about the MTCR as though it, it ties the United States' hands in this way and, and limits these kinds of exports, but not only does it not say you can't do that, it says there's a strong presumption of denying exports, which you know it's probably open to some interpretation what really that means. But it's also, it's not a legally binding agreement. No, I mean, the U.S. abides by the MTCR because the, I think the United States thinks that the MTCR has actually worked reasonably well at preventing the spread of long-range cruise missiles and, and ballistic missiles. I mean, essentially, it's so much harder for countries like Iran and North Korea to acquire some of those capabilities, or at least in theory, because the MTCR exists. And the thought... Uh, I think previously was that that was a more important goal, essentially, than drone exports. And so, if you're going to, so the you know there were parts of the bureaucracy willing to sacrifice drone exports, essentially, to avoid opening up a discussion about the MTCR. I think the problem is that in the end, all it did was it made the MTCR look ineffectual. But so so, but has the MTCR worked? I mean, you're an expert on the proliferation of military technologies. When you look at the, the original purpose in ballistic and cruise missiles, you know, as an academic, do you think it's a success? I would say it's uh, it's a more of a success in the area of ballistic missiles than it's been in the uh, in the cruise missile arena, uh, simply because the uh, basic cruise missile technology has diffused much faster, and increasingly advanced cruise missile technology is uh, is diffusing, and the 
the differentiation between you know category one systems you know 300 kilometers 500 kilograms it's not like that's some kind of like magic where you know above that we're like 301 uh you know kilometers is somehow like way like a much bigger deal than like 299 it's you know it's kind of arbitrary and and we we actually see that i mean to, to critique the mtcr for a second you know if you look at the publicly announced specs of the uh, chinese and israeli systems that get exported they basically will be you know they'll say like oh this system goes 290 kilometers and has a payload of 450 kilograms like oh, i wonder where that you know wonder where they got that from well and moreover when you look at things like the endurance of systems you know a lot of these these chinese reportedly category two systems look a lot like you know what the u.s would call a category one system like a reaper i'm i'm skeptical i mean there's an intellectual property reason for that maybe but yeah exactly right like it's just it's hard to imagine that you build a system here in the united states that we classify as a category one china rips off that technology builds a reverse engineered variant of it and then is saying oh it's category two and that our bureaucracy seems to take that at face value I mean, it's like an, it, it's it's an interesting example of one of the I think challenges of being a democracy in the international community, and in that the the U.S. is just more likely to get called out. You know, if the U.S. somehow, or if if, uh, if say like General Atomics lied about the about the payload or range of a Reaper, then like the U.S. military would know, and like they wouldn't be thrilled with that. And you know, since they use those they use that equipment, and like that would be a public thing. Whereas for a country like China, they, they're a little more able to play fast and loose. Right. Or they just don't care about right. that kind of criticism. Fair enough. Yeah. All right. So when we add it all up, what do we predict going forward? Incremental change, no change, or um, major change in the actual practice of U.S. exports? My bet would be incremental change. Unless there's some enormous backlog of proposals waiting to be approved, my bet would be incremental change over the next few years. The, I think if there's if if this policy is successful at making it easier to export armed drones, uh, ironically, we might actually see the effects for three or four years because it, it takes a while for requests for those purchases to work their way through the system, like even in the best case. So the you know in the short term, what I would expect is is a, is a few more approvals as the U.S. seeks to illustrate to allies and partners that, uh, that you know, the U.S. is open for business for armed drone exports to responsible countries. All right, well, we will stay tuned and uh, look to see if this results in some any real changes. Thank you so much, Mike, for coming in and talking with us. Thanks for having me.